Yeah, so let's start with sliding into a sacred space, into a safe space. Yeah, it depends on what is beneficial for you, but here we start first with the body. Yeah? So adjusting the body, assuming the posture, taking your seat, finding the balance with gravity and adjusting the hips and the shoulders, the head, and noticing where you want to rest your hands, feeling the earth, the floor carrying you, and uh, from the beginning uh, bring an awareness or an appreciation of sitting together, and not only here in our Sangha, but feeling the field of practitioners everywhere right now who sit with us in the presence of the spirit, of the divine, of uh, Buddha nature, and grounding yourself in present moment awareness, the sounds, sensations, have your eyes open, a visual field, sliding into the spacious aliveness of your body, unhooking from thoughts, and uh, allowing that to happen. So it's not like a pushing or an effortful meditation, but something which more letting go and allowing and letting be. As best as you can, you relax the need to feel better. Starting to understand that suffering comes from assistance, what is, and feeling better happens when you give space to what is. Softening the belly and the shoulders. Depending on the state of your mind, it's always helpful to, in the beginning at least, to have a, an anchor where you can return to, like the rising and falling of your belly or your hands. And gravitate to direct bare experience so there's no need to label your experience just experience script level is obvious, changing, moving, it's the display of your karma, the sense of I, that's all script level, sem in the Tibetan language, time, space, it's all sem, memories of the past, thoughts about the future, it's all sem, judgments of the present moment, it's all sem, the script. Also, subtle scripts like the sense of separation, the sense that you are the body, it's all part of the script. Göteborg is part of the script, Sweden is part of the script. Feeling separate, localized in time and space is part of the script. It's a subtle script, not even conscious, but it's all part of the script. You do less and less, unless there is this moments of the entanglement, of emphasizing, <coughs> the narrative self-level and then you make this gentle sliding back into the spacious aliveness of your body. Spacious aliveness of your body includes the sounds and the sense of this room, the sense of the group. And then we call upon the presence of our mentors, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and so on. 
the lineage, timeless wisdom lineage, call upon our refuge. We stabilize our vision or our intention to wake up, to grow up and to show up for the benefit of all. And then you rest in the midst of your experience as it is. There's nowhere else to go, no further to go. Everything happens by itself. And then we start the part of, of the self-inquiry. So I will repeat the questions a few times and you just <coughs> notice what happens. How does it feel to be you? And you can repeat that question for yourself uh, and saying, how does it feel to be me? If the me uh, gets stuck in the Alaya Vijnaya, in the content, you notice that and you ask the question again or you follow that question deeper, wider, in a more open way. How does it feel to be me? So many people at that moment, they don't have the stability of attention to pause in that gap and that's fine short glimpses, repeated again and again, until they become continuous. How does it feel to be you? And notice the different processes which sabotage or distract. How does it feel to be me? Sounds come and go, thoughts come and go, feelings come and go. You are already there, timeless and infinite, boundless, not separate from the movement, but also not exactly the same. How does it feel to be you? It can be a bit of an anchor in the background, the breath, pleasant or unpleasant sensations or sound, or grounding you in present moment sense experience. How does it feel to be you? A variation of this is maybe not accessible to everyone, but remember a childhood experience, you know, something very simple, something pleasant. And don't worry if that's not accessible for you right now. But some people can access childhood memories in the garden, in the kitchen, in, in school movement and then you ask how, how did it feel to be me back then how did it feel to be me how did it feel to be me and, and that me is the same as the me now and then you rest you rest in the looking how does it feel to be you and rest then you, of course, you get caught, but then you make a backward step again. How does it feel to be you? So this movement towards you in uh, the three method methods which Ken McCloy describes in the first 20 in the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva, he calls that transforming. 
and he uses the self-inquiry question, what is aware? So that would be your experience of trigger, and maybe that kind of trigger is like an anxiety or anger. He uses anger as an example. It's, it's verse 20 is the verse about anger. So you bring your awareness into the body. Where do I feel this in the body? And then you use the self-inquiry question to, to invite that experience of something is opening. And this uh, method is called transformation because when we experience this shift, the wisdom aspect of anger, which is clarity, becomes available to us. So we transform this moment of reactivity, which you can be looked at from a karmic point of view or from a trauma point of view. So we, we make this backward step, not uh, because anger is something inherently bad or something, but because we understand the wisdom aspect of anger. You know, anger is an energy, uh, the energy uh, which is locked into that reactivity in this opening up, you don't lose the wisdom aspect, the clarity of knowing your boundaries were crossed, something needs to be done, something needs to be said. There's an alertness, an awakeness. You're there, but your response to the situation doesn't come from the narrative self, from defensiveness. The response comes from that, from you. The same is if that experience, if you work with desire in that moment, attraction, where do I feel this in the body? The attraction, how does it feel to be me? Or what is aware? So there's an opening and the vitality in the, in the desire becomes available to you. So the wisdom aspect of desire is discriminative wisdom. So what that means is you become more present with a grasping desire instead of using an attractive person, maybe we use a piece of cake. <laughs> so, let's take a piece of cake. Also maybe if, uh, with, a, with a person it's maybe more obvious, no? Probably, I mean, I guess you, you know these moments you know, when uh, the attraction to another person is like grasping, it's like, it's like uh, it's the, there's a contraction in it, you know, wanting to keep, wanting to use, wanting to satisfy yourself. So if that is open, what is left is this wonderment, that stillness, you, know, you, you see every movement, the colors, the smells, you're just completely there, very present, but you don't grasp, you admire, you're full of wonderment. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like there's different ways to enjoy a flower, you know, the kind of wanting to have it, it's kind of narrow, and then there's, and if we relax that, then suddenly everything opens up and you really see the flower, you're present to the flower. Your, your senses are enhanced. That's the discriminative wisdom. And the shape of the flowers could be in another way. Yes. More, more 
Yeah, and you see it in the connected, no? So you see it in connected with the environment, and it, it is really also a perceptual shift, and it feels alive. It's interesting to know that though there is the mirror-like wisdom, which is you, you don't judge things. But the mirror-like wisdom doesn't mean everything becomes like indifferentiated, because the discriminative wisdom is also part of that. So you don't judge, it's one taste, it's also called one taste, but in the same time you are more aware of the details. So it's not like mirror-like wisdom that it is like a flat thing, yeah? Because well, if we had only mirror-like wisdom, then it would be a flat thing. But one taste, in one way you don't differentiate things anymore, but the, the discriminative wisdom at the same time enhances your capacity to become aware more of the details. Less filters, yeah? Less less of these dramatic and karmic filters, more direct, sensual contact with all senses. And then the third discriminative wisdom, the all-accomplishing wisdom, at the same time, in that moment, the response to the situation will be of benefit, uh, will be beneficial. You want to serve, you want to help. You don't want to squeeze your own pleasure out of the object for yourself. Your presence becomes, if it's another person, becomes one of service. You want to serve the partner and not use her. Very different. Yeah. Everything is alive. Everything is sacred. Everything is spirit. So that is the third. Uh, no, you can. Many of you have the book Thirty-Seven Practices. You can go to first twenty, and there's the three methods: uh, dissolving, employing, transforming. And transforming is that what we just did. That's like tantra. Uh, I made a bit of a jump with this, yeah, but that's fine. So uh, now for the rest of this afternoon. We will look a bit at healing, purification, purifying karma, trauma. Yeah? And we talked yesterday, I talked already about kind of the direction when we talked about the four characteristics of trauma. It is invisible. So our practice of healing is to make it visible. And we reflected a bit, what does it mean to make it visible? Your sharing, that's like making it visible, talking about it, sharing about it. Another characteristic of trauma is it is relational. Trauma and karma is relational. This shift could happen because there were other people witnessing. It's relational. If we work on a sense of separation, isolation, loneliness, being separate, we need others to heal that. You can't sit in your, at home in your retreat and uh, work with the re relational stuff. To a certain extent, you, you do that also in a retreat, yeah? because you do loving-kindness, bodhicitta practices, and so on. But it, that has its limits. So to make the invisible visible, 
Yeah, and I talked about the most important thing here is curiosity, awareness, yeah? and I talked also yesterday about how the teachings describing different karmic processes can enhance our awareness of them because we don't see it directly. It's hidden. It's dormant. I mentioned dreams, shadow work, reflecting on the ten non-virtuous actions, looking for patterns in your life, what's happening in your life, so to become aware. Yeah. Using those teachings not just as a, like some knowledge we have, but to kind of use the teachings as a, where do I find this in myself? The pattern of stealing, the pattern of sexual misconduct. Yeah. Where, where is that happening? Using relations and other people also as a feedback. Like when we notice patterns in other people, you know, something which annoys us, that could be a sign. Not necessarily, but there is some connection to your inner life. If we are surrounded by arrogant people, at one point, it's good to ask the question, so, hmm, that's a bit, what's the likelihood that every office you worked uh, so far in your life was filled with arrogant people? Hey, has there something to do with me? Not like what you see in other people is, is, is in you, not simple like that, but kind of using that as a question. So why is it that in my life I always struggle with money and, and resources? In a way, what is happening in our life is the feedback of the, of the universe showing us where we are still stuck. And uh, you know, health issues, any kind of things which are happening in the body. You know, the bo our body gives us feedback all the time. And we don't listen to it. To become curious about that. And I'm not saying like uh, tension in the body or a, a, a sickness that we only look at it from a karmic perspective. Also, we lo look at it from a medical perspective and do anything which we can do to, uh, to ease our pain. It's not that simple like that. Yeah? That, okay, if, if I have cancer, then I just need to dissolve the karmic issue behind it or the emotional issue or the trauma and then I will be healed. It's not that simple, but it can be part of the, the process of going through sickness, going through discomfort, seeing it as a feedback, bringing a karmic, traumatic, oriented, informed relationship view on what is happening in our body and not ignoring it, which we are so good at. Ignoring, ignoring, just popping in some psychopharmica and kind of numbing it and, and hoping it will go away by itself if we don't look. That, that's the commitment, that's the pledge we take as a, as a practitioner when we take our seat. Trauma is invisible, we, our practice is to make it visible. Trauma leads to disconnection. Karma is disconnection through the perceptual filters. We disconnect from the situation. Yeah? We have these layers, perceptual layers. Part of these perceptual layers, and I mentioned that, and it's, it's really very important, is the perceptual layers of the nihilistic, 
reductional, materialistic, so-called scientific point of view, which disconnects us from the sacred, which disconnects us from spirit. That's the big crisis in our time. It disconnects us from our environment. It disconnects us from others. It makes us suspicious to any woo-woo-woo. And there is a lot of woo-woo-woo and a lot of bullshit, yeah? So there is some benefit in it. But uh, it's also, it disconnects us from the, the divine presence, the light of the Dharmakaya, which is pervading and surrounding everything. Because we believe only what we can see with our senses and what can be proven by science exists, and everything is just superstitious. And some people, they, they completely lost their capacity to feel people, to feel environments, to feel nature, to feel the spirits, to feel the angels. We all have that capacity. But we, we, we have disconnected from that. So the healing process is to reconnect. Reconnect with the body. Reconnect with emotions. Reconnect with nature. Reconnect with spirit. Reconnect with others. You could also say that you get occupied. You get disconnected from the sacred and you, because you are occupied in the yeah. house. Or yes. Yeah, the, the materialistic scientific point of view says you are some brain jelly and uh, you are this body and the best you can do with your life is to go shopping and have some nice experience and to be productive, to, to go to work. I mean, it's, it's amazing. The, the, the only objective of our health system is to make us go back to work. That's, you know, that's the psychiatry, the, the, like the mental health institution of Sweden has the only objective to make you to go to work. It's quite interesting. Uh, at the school where I'm headmaster, we had an inspection because they have now found out that Steiner schools have a lot of uh, spiritual thoughts. Yeah. And that's totally dangerous. Yeah, that's so really dangerous. All these schools now in whole Sweden. And I've been sitting with them for several days, and I had to explain why we do certain things and kind of yeah. hide the That's spiritual right. parts. And it's yeah. children we're talking about. Yeah. And, and it's not only adults who have to go to back to work, but the children have to go to back to work and have a certain amount of minutes of mathematics in a week, because otherwise they will not become good persons. Yeah. And then all the, all the teenagers are really feeling so bad nowadays because of all, all of this, partly. Because they, they, they are forced to disconnect. Yeah, and it, it's, yeah. it's kind of a, really a balance to yeah. try to keep this view of, of the, that we are bigger than just the material parts of us. Yeah, and at the same time, please, these inspections, people who are yeah. who could actually close our school if yes, they say wrong that's things. right. It's kind of a bit scary. It is, it is scary, yes. When you see the development of mindfulness practice and meditation practice, that's like also people who try to make it keep on selling it. But the problem with that is it becomes then so, so technical. So mindfulness practice becomes disconnected from spirit. So it's just like a technique which you can describe in terms of stress reduction. So meditation practice becomes 
a biological oriented technique for stress reduction, completely disconnected from spirit, completely disconnected from the divine, from the sacred. But it's understandable. Uh, I mean, imagine a Steiner school without what it is about, in order to survive. But there's also there's really weird things in the, in the Steiner's. So, yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Probably you have your own I problems. Yeah, yeah, so it's a quite a, a struggle for many uh, uh, Steiner uh, teachers. You know, that, that there's so so much weird. I mentioned that also the the relational. So trauma is relational. Sangha, relation to the teacher very important. Noticing processes in us which say, I just need to, I can figure it out myself. No, this self-reliance, which, which is also a resource, but it can be too extreme. So it's often a question of balance, going the middle way. And sometimes uh, the relational part is neglected in, in our practice. So it's so important in, in, in groups like this to not only focus on the teachings, and, but also to focus on creating spaces where we can just meet and talk and hang out, like the breaks, you know? like you know, creating some space before and after the teachings, and then also working together, yeah? creating, creating the retreats together, being involved. All relationships need to be cultivated. You need to cultivate the relationships to teachers. And they, it has to be important. And cultivating relationship to teachers does not mean to be friends with them. Or it doesn't even necessarily need to talk with them. But to show up, to prioritize, to support, to help. These teachings, the Tibetan teachings, the spiritual teachings, they, they, they don't work when you consume them. It doesn't work. Of course, you know, you can listen to podcasts and read some books and consume, but that's not going to change a lot. At, at one point, we need to engage, relate, get into it. It's an exchange. So that's uh, like the practice of dana, donation, in, in, in the traditional Buddhist teachings, so, so important. And that's not uh, just, you know, because they want to live in big monasteries or something. It has to be part of our practice, the giving part, the relating part, the dialogue, the kind of struggling with it and, yeah, in relationship. And the last point was trauma and karma is embodied. The healing path is back into the body. How does it feel in my body? Body awareness. So the first of the practices in Ken McLeod's book, Reflection on Silver River, is dissolving. And I just want to read some, some quotes from how he describes this practice. And, and uh, that's nothing new. So I actually de uh, described this. Uh, already this weekend. 
as I said, this is the first about anger, so he uses anger as an example. But this is applicable to all content, to all difficult feelings. So he, he says, to dissolve anger, experience it. Experience it without expressing or repressing it. Experiencing it without expressing or suppressing it. An exploration of that. What is the expressing? Actually, part of this is also, to be able to do this, you need to have some experience of expressing. You need to know and, and lose the fear of expressing. We need to become aware where we suppress and how. How does it feel to suppress? How does it feel to suppress anger? Because in order to find this middle way, we need to know the extremes. So one way to kind of make a little test if you suppress, let's say anger, let's take anger as an example, and to get to know it in your body, how you do it, what is happening in, in suppression. So if you now think about a person, you know, we are close to a person, like a partner, a child, no, a partner, or your parents, or a friend. So you, you, you think about that person, and you say to yourself, we can do that as a little exercise this afternoon, and then you, you say, so you imagine that, and you say to yourself, I'm free in this relationship to feel and express my anger. If I, if I do this now, I think just short, shortly about my mother, and I say to myself, I'm free to express, to feel and express my anger. Do you know what happens in my body? No, I can't. Yeah, I never. I mean, I'm. I, I as a child, I was not allowed to express my anger, and I couldn't do it. I mean, with a few exceptions, even when I was fifty. So that's a good example how I can get to know this process, and I can notice it on two levels: on the somatic level, but I can also I can. Notice it in my thought, and they say, yeah, but then she gets so sad, and you shouldn't express your anger to your mother, or, you know, and I'm a Buddhist, and you should, anger is bad, and so all this. Yeah? So I notice, when I say uh, I'm free to express my anger, <coughs> that doesn't mean that it is appropriate to, uh, like, to express my anger, but it's a difference of not being able to do it, and being shit scared, and just being repressing it, or not doing it because it's not a helpful thing to do in that moment. So you don't pick up the sword, but you're able to have the, use your sword. It's a two different things. The, the, the one thing is just uh, repression and fear. And the other is, okay, I could, I, I could now be very sharp, but I leave it. I don't need to do it. I could because I'm not afraid of anger. So I'm looking forward to meet my mother again, to, uh, <laughs> to, to keep on working on this, on this issue. Yeah. So, th th so that's a, like a little, uh, a little exercise one can do 
to become curious. And, and once you get to know this uh, suppression of anger, you start to notice when you do it in daily life. Because you, you familiarize yourself with this. How does it feel? And then for some people it's maybe not anger, maybe for some people it's more uh, sadness. You know? I'm free to express, to feel, and to express my sadness to this person. What, what happens then? Maybe with some people you feel, yeah, wow, yeah, I, I'm really free to express my sadness to this person. So wonderful to feel that. And with other people maybe you feel, you feel this, I'm not free in this relationship to express my, my sadness. So expressing it without, uh, experience it without repress, expressing or repressing it. And, and that's what we do in meditation. I mean, in meditation we sit down and we kind of take with the posture this commitment upon us not to express it. Like if we feel like distracting ourselves, if you, because we are sitting, we're taking this commitment. And that gives us the possibility to see there is a middle way between suppressing and expressing. What is that? To feel it completely, to, to give it an inter internal expression. So now, that's the beginning. Yeah? So there is one step before that, actually, and that is creating a safe space. Preliminary practice, preparation practice. So then, to return to the language of metaphor, your anger is a frightened, scared, hurt and lonely child having a tantrum. If you are uh, familiar with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, so that's kind of his, he, he wrote a whole book about this, embracing anger or something like that. Here, I already said, it could be helpful to bring into your meditation practice uh, this, uh, this view that you are, I mean, you are not a single entity, but to kind of consciously bring a perception into the meditation that there's many parts of you, many processes at the same time, and that for some people it is helpful to personify these parts, like it is being done in the internal family system therapy, the internal family. So you give them names, you personify. You do that also in the practice of feeding your demon, where you personify a certain process which makes it possible to relate to that part because you take it a bit out, out, but also you don't identify with that part so much. You are not the, the hurt child. It's a part of you, which helps to be less ashamed of that part, less identified. Hold that child tenderly in, in your attention. Yeah, and, and that's like the kind of the medicine. Tender attention. Hold that child tenderly in your attention. So when we start to step into a traumatic complex, this tenderly attention, tenderly attention, it takes time to be able to do that, to figure out what, how that feels. 
And if we are not able to do that, we need to borrow the eyes of another person. We need to borrow a witness. And that witness can be a group, can be a spiritual teacher, can be a therapist. And then, slowly, slowly, we, we uncover that capacity of tender attention in ourselves. Uh, one way to, uh, to connect with that is, you know, sometimes I lead this meditation where we invite a friend and we open that capacity within us through the relationship to the friend, like the parents here. You look at your child, maybe when they are asleep, <laughs> 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 and uh, and and you you co you connect with the with the mother with the mother in you the father in you as an archetype. So you look at your child, and and that opens that capacity for you. you know? That was boom when your child was born. Yeah, you didn't know it even before probably. Boom. For some people, it's like immediately, the first moment when they see their child. It's very, very likely that your mother and your father looked at you in that way. Very likely. It's, it's innate in human beings. It's innate in mammals. It's very likely that when your parents, even if they screwed up after, <laughs> which they did, in that moment, you were the most beautiful miraculous, perfect person. And in them arose an incredible bond, an incredible pledge of I'm going to protect this person even if it costs my life. Very powerful. It's kind of a little glimpse of bodhicitta. So those of you who don't have children, you can find, you know, look at your cat, look at your plant at a friend when you care about something. So you can use that. So, but now, uh, connected with this method is, then you take that and look at yourself in this way. And at yourself here means, because there's no separate entity, yourself means your parts, the feelings of connected with a traumatic experience. So you look at that, with that you. So, and then slowly, slowly, you can, so, uh, you can absorb it, you know, enhance it. It becomes more easily available for you. So that at one point, if you have done that for a while, slowly, slowly, that will become an automatic response to anything which arises within you. Ah, oh yeah, jealousy insecurity, sadness, shame, guilt. So the traumatic or the karmic response to these movements might be often judgment, repression, projection, numbing, denying, yeah? all the defense mechanisms. And we start to replace them. We revire our neuronal pathways from these unwholesome responses to more wholesome responses. So we link 
difficult experience with a positive response. Yeah, we, we link an experience of anxiety, for example, with a positive response. Hold that child tenderly in your attention. The tender, no. Do not try to make her do anything. You know, I have talked about spiritual bypassing. One possible trap here could be that we are using even compassion and love as ways to try to get rid of that child. Yeah, yeah I love you, my little uh, vulnerable child, and I did now for 20 seconds, and please now you go away. That's why he says, you don't try to do anything. You're witnessing, tenderly witnessing. Just hold her, yeah, just hold her. Let her cry, let her rage, Hold her tenderly with loving kindness and compassion. You do not try to make it go away. So that's what we try. Of course, we try. Uh, I mean, we try. We try that and fail yeah? <laughs> because we have this strong instinctual urge to avoid pain and to get rid of pain. So we become aware of that, and maybe we can relax that a bit. So become more aware whenever you use spiritual practices, even practices of compassion to get rid of the unwanted in you, that what you don't want to feel, that, that what you don't uh, want to touch. Spiritual bypassing, very important to become aware of that. Because with spiritual bypassing, you're, you're not going to progress on the path of awakening. You do not try to fix it. That is your practice, to experience it without getting lost in it. So this is important, is not getting lost in it. How do we prevent not getting lost into it is through the preparation practices. That's why the preparation practice is so important. Because if we, if we do practices like this and we get lost in it, meaning when we work with trauma we get re-traumatized, then no healing happens. To the opposite, we get more into the spiral. So not getting lost in it. Preparation practices, grounding, present moment awareness, grounding in the senses, refuge, feeling safe, doing this together, being connected with others, asking for help, not getting lost in it. And always Always go as far as you can, but not beyond. Keep going back to the safe place. Lean into it, and then you go back. Here, a kind of an, a distraction and entertainment can be a healthy thing, as medicine. Watching Netflix can be a good thing, a healthy thing. You know, so you watch Netflix, you know what you're doing, you give yourself a break, and the next day you go back. Or next week you go back into the therapeutical context and you look at it again. Little by little, that child feels your quiet presence. Little by little, that child feels your quiet presence. Little by little, she calms down. And then at one point, what might happen? No, that this child, 
of course, she doesn't, doesn't trust in the beginning. She doesn't trust you. She, she doesn't trust you as a witness. So you, you need to be really patient. You need to be committed to her. Like a therapist is committed to his clients, is showing up at time, creates safety through being committed, creates safety through his, his or her actions, yeah. being reliable, turning up again and again, not giving up on her. That takes time. And then, at one point, she might even start to talk. So that's the point, we mentioned that, that in the hurt there's wisdom. And she, she starts to communicate with you. Maybe memories come from that situation when, when that hurt child came into existence. There, there's wisdom there. And when she starts to talk, then you just listen. And then you say, oh, tell me more. So you return, you turn to that, that, that part in you with tender attention and, and you just listen. You don't give advice. You don't kind of try to minimize, oh, it was not so bad, there was also the father or something like that. Trauma is subjective. I'm not trying to convince her, oh, you, you are safe or something. She has, to, she has to feel that herself. And then you say, oh, tell me more. I, I'm here. I'm listening. I want to get to know you. What do you need? Tell me more. So that's the practice of dissolving. Don't know if it's a good name for that, but that's how, how uh, Kenner calls it. Uh, uh, calls it. Dissolving is a bit like, can be kind of understood in kind of getting rid of it. Yeah, finally, I dissolved her. <laughs> so, uh, so it's healing. It's healing uh, the different aspects. There is a, traditionally, there is a practice of feeding the demon, which is actually not, I mean, it's, it's a method developed by Sultan Malion, and it's, it's based on Jungian thoughts, so it's, it's, it's already a, a bit of a mixture. Then there's a practice of focusing. Yeah. Very good to learn as a meditator to get a bit curious about the practice of focusing for Gendling. This is the guy who developed that. Yeah. Like turning towards somatic experiences and learning from them. And then, yeah, then there's the internal family system therapy. And that's something, you know, there's, uh, the guy is called Schwartz who developed it. And uh, uh, very much in, in, in a Buddhist context, but they call the Buddha nature the self. Self is a big S. Yeah? Because what you are, from where that tender attention comes from, is the self, what they call the self. It's not, com I mean, th there's like audio books, yeah? where you are guided in some meditations. Uh, so it's not. It's not like uh, that we need to do that for a few years. No? We, can, we can get some inspiration on how to relate to the inner parts and what kind of question and attitudes are helpful quite quickly. Yeah. It's a very helpful tool for meditators because these things come up in meditation. These things come up in retreat. And it's good to have like a toolbox because if you don't have any tools, 
it's not so often, but it can happen, part, particularly like kind of in the Goenka style Vipassana retreats. People leave these retreats destabilized because they didn't have any tools to respond to the content coming up. And it's not good enough to just sit there and look at it and look at it and look, yeah, just be aware, it will pass, it's impermanent. It's, that's, that's fine for a healthy a psyche, yeah? but if very difficult things come up in the retreat, it's really important to have some tools to, to be able to relate to these experiences. 